morning. If you're here with us for the first time or the hundredth time, our desires for the same for every single person, that this morning you'll join us in taking one step closer to Jesus. If you don't know me, my name is Jeremy Humble. I'm one of the elders here at Crossbridge. I'm also privileged to be a member of our preaching team. And I'm excited this morning to continue our journey through the life of Moses. But I'm not going to lie. I'm actually a little bummed out that I didn't get to be a part of the 80s blockbuster series that we did early in the summer. I thought it was an awesome series. I kind of wanted to do that, not Moses. No offense to Moses. Um, But specifically, I had one movie in mind that we didn't go over that had probably a bigger impact on me than any other movie during the 80s. And maybe this is actually the same for you. And when I tell you what the movie is, maybe you'll go, okay, yeah, I can see that. Well, there was a movie that had such a huge impact on me. It affected me, I was probably maybe seven or eight years old when this really had an impact on me. Um, And really, it led to a lot of sleepless nights. And that is the movie Nightmare on Elm Street. So if you're about my age, maybe, maybe you had the same feeling as I did. I didn't say it was a good impact. But this movie kept me up at night, and I was terrified of going to sleep. And the truth is, I didn't even see the movie. I was too young to see this movie. But I knew who the villain in the movie was. Okay, so maybe it's actually good that Jimmy didn't let me preach about this. Maybe it's good that we didn't have a whole movie, or a whole sermon on Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street. But the idea was in this movie, if you have never seen it or don't know what it's about, the villain, Freddy Krueger, appears to you in your dreams, and he has complete control when you don't. And whatever he does to you in your dreams happens to you in real life. So as an eight-year-old child, this terrifies me, of course. You know, the boogeyman that's in my closet is Freddy Krueger in my mind. And I'm afraid to go to sleep because I'm afraid of what he might do to me. And I'm going to be a little honest. Maybe today I'm still a little afraid of this man. But I'm fighting every night to, to stay awake because I want to maintain that control. So what a brilliant concept for a villain this is, right? It's a monster that exists in a world where he has complete control and we have none. But thankfully, as I grew up, mostly, like I said, um, I grew to understand that Freddy, he's just a movie character. He's not real. He can't hurt me. But the truth is, He's not my only boogeyman. And the other boogeymen don't necessarily go away. Rather, they become more real. It's not just a character in a movie. Sometimes the boogeyman in my life, there's something as mundane as a work situation that's a little difficult, or financial struggles, a difficult relationship that I'm having to deal with. And those are the things that are keeping me up at night. Or sometimes it's a lot bigger than that even. It's something the world throws at me that's bigger than just my personal life. It's stuff like cancer, or a pandemic, or war, or death. And each time I come face to face with whatever boogeyman is in my life, I'm asking, what do I do when I'm faced with something so terrifying that it feels so much bigger than me? And I'm going to assume that this is a question that maybe you've asked yourself or are asking yourself right now too. What do you do when you come face-to-face with your boogeyman? And the good news is that this question isn't a new question, and it's actually one that Moses has to wrestle through. So let's continue his story this morning to see how he deals with it. When we left off last week, Moses has gone to the burning bush. God has appeared to him in the form of a burning bush, and he revealed just who he is to Moses and what he wants him to do. And after five different excuses... Moses reluctantly agrees to go to Egypt with his brother Aaron to confront Pharaoh regarding 
the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, the Israelites. Okay, now before we really jump in here, I think it's important to understand just who Moses is going to confront. See, at this time, Egypt is one of, if not the most powerful nations in the world. The nation of Egypt, it's governed as a monarchy and a theocracy. So here's what I mean by this. The one ruler of the nation, his title is Pharaoh, he's believed to be more than just a man. See, he's believed to actually be a god in human form. His firstborn son, then, is also going to be a god-man in human form. And he's going to assume the throne after Pharaoh dies. The Pharaoh, he's a man who's truly larger than life. He's revered, he's obeyed, and he's feared. And his word is not just law. His word is actually a godly edict. He's the most powerful man in the world at this time. And whether you live or die, he, he controls that. He controls what happens to the Hebrew people. When you come in front of him, he has the power of life and death in his hands. For all intents and purposes, for the Hebrew nation, this man is the boogeyman. He's larger than life. He has the power and they have none. And so in Exodus chapter 4, Moses heads back to Egypt to face the God-man Pharaoh, the biggest boogeyman in the world. He has his instructions from the Hebrew God, the one who calls himself I Am. And God tells Moses in Exodus 4, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. So, no big deal here. Moses is simply to go to the most powerful man in the world with the power to execute him on the spot, and he's demand, to demand him that he allows all his slave labor to stop working and go off into the desert. No big deal. All right, so before we see how this conversation goes down, it's important to recognize that God makes it clear here that he will empower Moses. Look what he says in verse 21. Go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I have empowered you to do. Now, earlier in chapter 4, God's actually proven that he has this power and the ability to empower Moses by having Moses throw down his staff and he turns it into a snake. And then he has Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he removes it, it's filled with disease. And he puts his hand back in his cloak, pulls it back out, and it's healed. So Moses now, he knows that God can empower him. He knows that God has the ability to do this. And here in verse 21, God reminds Moses that he is the one that's going to do these things through Moses, not Moses. Now, I also think there's something else interesting to point out here. Um, in his initial request that he makes, Moses is to go to Pharaoh, and he's not to ask Pharaoh just to free the Israelites and they'll become a free nation, right? I think that's what we all have in our mind, that this is what's happening, but that's not what God says. In fact, in chapter 7, God very specifically says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival in my honor in the wilderness. Moses' request is just that the people will be allowed to go into the desert to hold a festival in honor of God. But most importantly, God's instructions to Moses make it very clear that this is not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. This is not Moses versus Pharaoh. This is a showdown between Pharaoh and God. Moses is to tell Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you, let my son go so he can worship me. 
But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. So not only is God making it clear that God made Pharaoh, that this is a showdown between the two of them, he tells them from the very beginning that if he refuses, God will demonstrate his superiority by killing Pharaoh's firstborn son. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he delivers this message. And I'll be honest, I feel like I've been in this exact same situation. Okay, maybe not this exact same situation. I've never appeared before a godman who has the power to kill me on, right on the spot, who's enslaved my people. Um, I've never done that before. I'm guessing none of you have either. Just an educated guess. But I can definitely, definitely say that there's times in my life I can look back and say, I've faced the boogeyman in my life. That I felt God calling me to face this boogeyman. I put my big boy pants on went in armed with what I felt God desired for me, and I attempted to take on something that I didn't really want to take on because I thought it was way bigger than me. And I feel like I often immediately run into the same thing Moses and his brother Aaron run into. Moses lays out God's demand, and how does Pharaoh respond? Is that so, reported Pharaoh? And who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. So Moses immediately runs into resistance. He gets a total brush off. See, Pharaoh believes that he is a god, and being a god, he has no reason to listen to another god that he doesn't know, and has no reason to believe is any more powerful than him. Now see, it's not because Pharaoh doesn't believe that there are other gods. The Egyptians worshipped many gods, and much like a lot of other cultures during this time, they had different gods that they believed ruled over different areas of life. So it's not that Pharaoh doesn't believe that this God couldn't exist. He just says, I don't know your God. This God of the Hebrews, I don't know him. And he doesn't believe that he has power. And why would he? Does this make sense, right? Because we good? All right, there we go. All right. I don't, yeah, I don't need my hands to talk as much as Jimmy, so th this can work. We can, we can do this. <laughs> So, Moses, you know what, I'll just use Mike. That's good. Yep, thanks. Thanks, Andy. So, this Egypt, or the Israeli people have been enslaved for 400 years at this point. Why would their God have any power, and why would he believe in any way that this God is more powerful than him? But Moses does persist in confronting Pharaoh right now, but Pharaoh continues to refuse. In fact, what happens is one of the worst-case scenarios I think we fear when confronting our own boogeyman. Things actually get worse. I don't know if you've had that fear, but I think I have that fear that if I'm going to actually step into this and confront the boogeyman in my life, what if things just get worse? Well, this is exactly what happens. Pharaoh is so incensed that Moses has even asked this that he orders his men to stop supplying straw for the Egyptians who are building bricks. So now, not only do the Egyptians, or the Israelis, still have to build the same amount of bricks that they've been making, but now they have to gather their own straw and do this. So the amount of work has increased tremendously for them. And as you can guess at this point, the Israelite people, they're not too happy about this. And in return, Moses isn't too happy with God. And I'm going to be honest, if I put myself in Moses' sandals, I totally get this. I think I feel the same way. He did what God asked him to do, even though he didn't feel like it. He told God that he couldn't do this. He faced his fears, though. He trusted God. And rather than Pharaoh letting the people go, things just got worse. 
Do you think he kind of felt right now like he did 40 years before that when he tried to take things into his own hands and things just got worse? Have you ever been here before? You're doing everything you believe God is asking you to do, even when it's difficult, and things just keep getting worse. That's a really, really frustrating and discouraging place to be. How do you respond when you're in that place? I know I can certainly identify with Moses when he says to God, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesman, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you have done nothing to rescue them. God, what was the point? Why did you make me do that? Now everyone hates me, and things are even worse for the people, and you don't even seem to care. That's a rough place to be in life. I know I've definitely been there. Maybe you have too. Where you're doing everything you think God wants you to do. It doesn't even feel like he cares. And things just keep getting better or maybe worse. God tells Moses to go back to the people who are now angry with him. And he's to tell them that God says he's going to rescue them. And so Moses and Aaron, they go do that. And it goes exactly like you'd expect it to go at this time. They don't even want to hear it. They don't even want to listen to them. Look what you did to us. You made things worse. So, that doesn't work. God then tells Moses and Aaron he, they're going to go confront Pharaoh again and tell him to let the people go, which worked out so well the last time. Now, many of you people, you probably know where this is all going. You've heard this story. Maybe you learned it in Sunday school when you were a kid. Or... Maybe you watched Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, you know, let my people go. Or you've watched the Prince of Egypt movie. If this has been my story, though, I think this is where it ends, if I'm being honest. Look, God, I did what you asked. It didn't work. In fact, it made things worse. The people now hate me. I told everyone what you told me to tell them, and it didn't work. I told you I couldn't do this. I'm done. I'm done. Moses' reaction is actually pretty much exactly the same thing. He's done. He wants out. You see, just like us, Moses, he only sees a small part of the picture at this point. He only sees what he knows, and he thinks that he knows God's plan better than God does. But at this point, God begins to share more of his plan with Moses. He actually tells Moses in chapter 7 that he's to go before Pharaoh again, but he should actually expect Pharaoh to continue to refuse to, ref to free the Hebrews. He should tell Pharaoh how God will perform miraculous signs and wonders, and then eventually he's going to bring his fist down upon Egypt so that Pharaoh will free his people, and Egypt will know that the God of the Hebrews is the Lord. At this point, Moses now kind of gets it. He sees that God has a bigger picture than what he does. God knows that Pharaoh is going to continue to be stubborn, but he's going to use that stubbornness to show just how truly powerful he is. And the God of the Hebrew people won't just rescue his people. He's demonstrating to the Egyptians in the world who the true God is, the great I am. So Moses, he goes back to Pharaoh, and God begins to reveal his power through ten different plagues. Now this is when Moses is going to decide. He's just going to obey what God says to do each time he comes face to face with his boogeyman. So these ten plagues, they're actually set up into three different groupings 
that follow a pattern. So let's take a quick look at the plagues and the showdown between Pharaoh, the God-man, and the God of the Hebrews. So before the first plague even happens, they go again before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh demands that Moses slash God perform a miraculous sign. So Aaron throws down his staff as God instructs, and his staff turns into a serpent. But Pharaoh has sorcerers, and they do the same thing. Only Aaron's serpent swallows up the serpents of the, the sorcerers, demonstrating that God is more powerful than the power of the sorcerers. But Pharaoh doesn't budge. So God instructs Moses to go down to the river in the morning, and he's to meet Pharaoh there. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that because he has been stubborn and won't let his people go, he's going to show Pharaoh just how powerful he is. So in Exodus 7, God says, I will show you that I am the Lord. Look, I will strike the water of the Nile with a staff in my hand, and the river will turn to blood. The fish in it will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink any water from the Nile. If you've ever been around a bunch of dead fish in blood, yeah, that's going to stink. So Aaron reaches out his staff over the water, and the water throughout the, all of Egypt immediately turns to blood. But just like the staff and the serpents, Pharaoh's sorcerers do the same thing. Now, I think it's worth pointing something out here. His sorcerers do the same thing. Do you catch that? They don't take the blood and turn it back to the water, which would actually be beneficial for the people. They do the same thing. They turn water into blood, making the problem worse. I don't know about you, but this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they do the same thing. So Pharaoh doesn't budge. Seven days later, God instructs Moses. He's to go back to Pharaoh and tell him to allow his people to go. And if he won't, Aaron's going to stretch out his staff over the waters. And this time, frogs are going to come out of the waters and cover everything. So Pharaoh still refuses to let him go. And frogs end up being all over the nation. But again, Pharaoh's sorcerers, they're able to use their magic, and they make the same thing happen. And again, I'm going to point out this actually is just making the problem worse, not any better. But you see, something different happens here. The results are actually a little bit different this time because Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron, and he begs them to pray to the Lord to remove the frogs and promises he will allow the Israelites to go into the desert and offer sacrifices if they do. So the next day, Moses prays, just like Pharaoh asked him, and the frogs do indeed die. But as soon as the frogs die, there's relief for the nation. Again, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he refuses to let the Israelites go, just as God said. So I think it's interesting. When we come face-to-face with our boogeyman, these larger-than-life moments that feel like they have all the power, and we have none in these situations, in the beginning, we do think that they're just as powerful as we originally thought, right? At the beginning, the sorcerers are doing the same thing. They're just as powerful. But over time, like Moses and Pharaoh, you start to realize that maybe this boogeyman isn't as powerful as you thought. I think this happens here to Moses when Pharaoh asks him to pray to his God. Again, his men don't get rid of the frogs. They create more. Nobody's getting rid of the frogs except when Moses prays to his God. So in the third plague and the last in this first group, there's no reference to going before Pharaoh this time and requesting the people go. God simply says, do it. Do not give them the chance this time. Just do it. And this is a pattern we see in the sixth and the ninth plagues too. So in Exodus 8, 16, we read, So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, raise your staff and strike the ground. 
The dust will turn into swarms of gnats throughout the land of Egypt. Aaron does this, and swarms of gnats or lice begin to cover the nation. And Pharaoh at this time, again, instructs his sorcerers there to do the same thing. Only this time, they can't do it. They can't do it. This is the moment the sorcerers actually begin to understand who they're up against. They actually tell Pharaoh, this can only be the power of the Lord. But the Pharaoh, he still hardens his heart, and he's not going to listen. So our first set of plagues are water into blood, frogs, gnats, or lice. Then we have the second set of three plagues, specifically the fourth and fifth plagues. Moses tells Pharaoh that God is going to send flies if he doesn't let the people go. And then he's going to strike the livestock with a deadly disease. The difference this time is that while all of Egypt is covered with flies and their livestock are dying, the Hebrews land and their animals, they're going to be clear and healthy. And each time this happens again, Pharaoh begs with Moses to pray for relief and promises he's going to let the Hebrews go. And when God answers Moses' Moses's prayer, Pharaoh tries to wiggle out of his promise, and he hardens his heart again. He's just not budging. And then in the sixth plague, again, the last and the second grouping of the plagues, just like in the last plague of the first grouping, God just tells Moses, you're not going to go before him again. You're just going to do this. So he tells Moses and Aaron they're going to grab handfuls of soot and throw them into the air in front of Pharaoh. And when they do this, soot spreads throughout the entire nation and festering boils break out on everybody in the nation, again, except for the Hebrews. And in this time, Pharaoh's sorcerers, they don't even come out. They don't try to attempt this because the Bible says they're so covered in boils that they can't leave where they are. They're that miserable. And again, there's a difference this time, though. So up until now, each time we've read about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But in chapter 9, verse 12, we read something different here. It says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and just as the Lord had predicted to Moses, Pharaoh refused to listen. So this time we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So I want to pause for a moment just to dive into this a bit, because I think this is actually a really difficult passage. First, we have to see and recognize that this isn't a one-off. We read the same thing after the eighth and ninth plagues as well. There's really no question here that God is the one that's hardening Pharaoh's heart. This isn't a mistranslation. This isn't a one-off thing. God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, Make most, no mistake. It's, it's also clear that Pharaoh himself is a very stubborn man. He's hardened his own heart. We see this throughout all the rest of the plagues, that Pharaoh is hardening his heart. So there's no question that this is where his character already is. But the idea that God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart, I think it starts to bring up some difficult questions, right? Does Pharaoh actually have any free will here? What does this mean for me? Can God harden my heart? So I think we need to dive in a little bit here. So to begin to understand why God hardened Pharaoh's heart, I think we need to look at his words to Pharaoh actually in the seventh plague, the first and our third set of plagues. This time, God instructs Pharaoh to be in the, uh, uh, sorry, Moses, to go meet Pharaoh in the morning again. So he's to meet him in the morning, and he's to tell him, let his people go. He then makes it clear to him that this is all part of his bigger plan. Moses is to tell Pharaoh, the Lord says, by now... I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off of the face of the earth. 
but I've spared you for a purpose, to show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. God tells Pharaoh that he could have ended all of this a long time ago. With one motion, he could have wiped them all out and freed his people. Just like he said back in chapter 4 at the beginning. God says that his purpose, though, was greater than just freeing his people. He also intended to show Egypt, Pharaoh, and the rest of the world who the one true God was. All along, God's plan involved going through each of these plagues leading up to the eventual death of Pharaoh's son in order to fully demonstrate his power so that people would understand just how powerful he is. We see this as we progress through the plagues. At the start, Pharaoh essentially scoffs at God's power as his sorcerers are able to replicate the plagues. But as the plague can plagues continue and his sorcerers can no longer replicate these plagues, Pharaoh begins to acknowledge the power of the Lord when he asks Moses to pray to end the plagues. And when he begins to attempt to negotiate with the Lord, okay, I'll let the people go, but not this. Okay, I'll let you go, but not the women and children. To fully reveal his power, we must progress through all the plagues, and thus Pharaoh's heart must be hardened. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure that that leaves me feeling completely comfortable as the answer. But the truth is that ultimately God is sovereign, and he may choose to enact his plan any way that he chooses. He demonstrates his power and his sovereignty through the plagues, and he demonstrates his power and sovereignty when he hardens Pharaoh's heart as he chooses to do during the seventh plague. Again, I don't know if this makes me super comfortable as an answer, but the truth is that God's bigger than we are. And again, this isn't outside of Pharaoh's character. It's not that Pharaoh is following God's word and he hardened his heart. It's just that God re-hardened his heart because he has a plan. So in the third set of three plagues, the seventh and eighth plagues are going to be more destructive than anything Egypt has ever seen. Moses tells Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the people go, God's going to send a hailstorm that's going to kill all the Egyptian livestock that's left. And after that, he's going to send locusts to strip all the fruits and the leaves from the trees. And just like last time, the Hebrews' animals and fruit trees, they're going to stay clean. They're going to stay healthy. And each time this happens, Pharaoh pleads with Moses again for relief, and he promises to let the Hebrews go, admitting that he sinned. But also, he's only going to let them go with these stipulations. He begins to bargain. But when God answers Moses' prayers for this relief, Pharaoh, he again, he tries to wiggle out of his promise and he hardens his heart. Pharaoh, he just won't budge. And for the third plague in the third group, just like the previous three plagues, God does not instruct Moses and Aaron to go to make demands of Pharaoh again. He simply tells Moses what to do in order to call down the ninth plague. When Moses lifts his hand toward heaven, complete darkness falls upon Egypt for three days. The only light is where the Israelite people live. Now this would be a direct affront to the Egyptians' most powerful god, the god Ra, the sun god. And this time, Pharaoh calls to him, and he tells them that all the people who leave to go worship, they can all leave. All they have to do is leave behind their livestock. See, little by little, Pharaoh has begun to give in, but he refuses to completely give in to God, and he seeks to hold on to what he thinks he can control. Now, I don't know about you, but this is where I start to identify with Pharaoh a little bit. 
because I wrestle with this way too often in my life. Calculatingly submitting to God so that I feel like that I'm the one in control. How many times in my life have I attempted to negotiate with God? God, if you'll just do this, I will do this. Or God, I'll, I'll, how about I, I'll go this far, but maybe not that far for you. But Moses insists they must be allowed to go. They have to take all of their livestock because they need to go and offer sacrifices as God requested. And again, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and he refuses to let them go. And it's at this point that God reveals to Moses there's one more plague that he's going to bring upon Egypt, and that not only will Pharaoh allow them to leave, he's actually going to force them to leave. So Moses tells Pharaoh that at midnight that night, God will pass through the nation and every firstborn son of every man and every firstborn male of every livestock will die. But that his people will be spared. So God then, he gives instructions to the Israelite people. They're to do something. They're to sacrifice a one-year-old lamb or goat that night and they're to eat it. And they're to put his blood around the tops of their door frames and the sides. And he gives them a ceremony they're supposed to follow. They're supposed to do these things. And then they're supposed to do this every year after that as a celebration of what's about to happen. And when the angel of the Lord passes through the city, the blood is to serve as a sign of the presence of his people. And this angel is going to pass over the house, sparing anyone who's inside, Hebrew or Egyptian. And in Exodus 12, 12, God tells them, exactly what he's doing. He says, on that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. Now remember, not only was Pharaoh believed to be a god-man, but the Egyptians worshipped many gods, as we talked about before, each of whom was believed to lead and be tied to different areas of life. And when we look back at all these plagues that have been happening, we see this has actually already occurred. We see that God has already been demonstrating who he is compared to these Egyptian gods. The Egyptian gods of the Nile, Happy and Osiris, they surely looked weak when the river was turned into blood. Jeb, the god of dust, he's shown to be powerless when the dust is turned into gnats. Isis, the goddess of health, and Emotep, the god over healing, were shown to be powerless as the nations covered in boils. The sky goddess Nut and Nepes, the god of grain, they're mocked by the destruction of crops by the hail and locusts. Ra and Horus, both sun gods, they can do nothing in three days of darkness. And Isis, the goddess of the protection of children, and the god-man Pharaoh, did nothing to stop the death of the firstborn male in Egypt. Egypt's gods, including Pharaoh the man-god and his firstborn son, who was supposed to be a god, could do nothing to stop the Lord of the Hebrew people. And that night, every firstborn male in Egypt died, including Pharaoh's son. And just as God said, Pharaoh calls Moses in the middle of the night, and he orders Moses to take all the people and their livestock and leave immediately. 
From the very beginning, God laid out his plan, and it played out exactly the way he said it would in Exodus 4. In the end, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, considered to be a god by his people, didn't just allow God's people to leave, he orders them to leave. The man who scoffed because he didn't know the Lord of the Hebrew people had no choice but to admit that he's powerless in the face of the Lord. The world's biggest boogeyman is no match for the one true God. And through all of the plagues, what was Moses' role in all of this as he confronts the most powerful man in the world? Over and over, he simply does what God tells him to do, and he acts as God's messenger. He doesn't tell Pharaoh that any of these messages are his. He doesn't say, this is what I say. He doesn't try to do things on his own like he did 40 years ago. He doesn't take credit for any of it. He simply shares God's message and allows God to do the work because he knew there's nothing that he can do on his own. He sees where that result leads. For Moses, confronting Pharaoh is too big for him. But when he trusts God and he obeys him and he allows God to work, God only not only comes through, but God is glorified in the process. I don't know what boogeyman you guys have in your lives today or what things in your life just feel too big to handle. But the God of Moses, the God that in last week's message we learned calls himself I am, is bigger than our biggest struggle, our biggest demons. When we can't see the full picture, the big picture, when we see the small picture that Moses saw to begin with, he can see the big picture. When we don't have the right words, he does. When we're not strong enough, he is. But the truth is, just like Moses, we do have to continue to do the part he calls us to do and trust and allow him to do the rest. Because here's the thing. He will call us to step out in faith. We're not just going to be allowed to sit back and do nothing. He does call us to take that step forward to confront the boogeyman. But just because things may continue to be difficult or let's be honest, may even get worse. It doesn't mean that he has abandoned us. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about us. It's during those times when we can trust that I am is in control and is more powerful than any boogeyman in our life. He is the God who defeats the most powerful men on earth. He is the God who's proven himself over all the gods. He's the God who rescues his people. He is the God who knows your name. When Freddy Krueger was my boogeyman, I couldn't sleep at night. That changed when I matured and realized that he wasn't real. Although the real boogeymen's in my life lead to a lot of sleepless nights still. I still have my share of situations where I'm facing someone or something that just feels like they have all the control. I have no power in this situation. It's just too big for me. I'm guessing you do too. If you're struggling right now with something in your life that just seems impossible, maybe it's a broken relationship, maybe it's loss, maybe it's addiction, maybe it's loneliness, maybe it's sin, anything we think, say, or do that displeases God, that has a hold on you, and it feels overwhelming. If you're struggling with something that feels too big, instead of running away or trying to muscle up and fight it on yourself, what if you took a different approach? What if facing the boogeyman in our life started with submitting to God and actually, actually believing that he is bigger and more powerful than anything we could battle? 
And what if we chose, like Moses, to trust God that he can redeem anything in our lives to bring him glory? I believe our battle starts with submission and obedience to God. But God can and he does do the work. He does do the work. He's a God who rescues. He calls us to be his people and he desires for each one of us to be rescued into his loving arms. I'm going to be honest with you. The story doesn't always look like we think it should look like. Rescue doesn't always look like we think it should look like. The process, it often isn't easy. But what we can do is we can look to the story of Moses and know that God has a bigger plan. That he is the great I am. That he is control. He is sovereign. And that we can trust him. If you're struggling this morning and you'd like us to pray with you, just as Moses' brother Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece when Moses didn't feel like he had the ability to communicate, please, we'd like to meet with you in our prayer area right after church to pray with you. Because sometimes in our struggles, we don't feel like we have the words. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. But just like Aaron was there with Moses, we have people that can surround you and pray the words for you. If you're online, you can fill out a connection card for prayer. You can reach out to us online, email us, call us, because we want to pray with you. Just like Aaron walked alongside and supported Moses, we'd love to stand with you in the face of your boogeyman. It can be tough when we face our boogeyman, when we do what we think God is asking us to do, and things seem to get worse. But God is bigger than our biggest boogeyman. And we have a community that wants to stand with you and support you, love you, and pray with you. As Jimmy comes up to lead us in communion, will you all pray with me right now? Father, I confess that often the big things in life feel bigger than you. They certainly feel bigger than me. They overwhelm me, Lord. They lead to sleepless nights. God, I feel like I can't control what's going on, and my world spins out of control. But Lord, you are the God who knows the big picture. You are the God who is in control. You are the God who's bigger than any man, any God, any situation. You command the seas and the earth, Lord. So Lord, as I try to take control, as I try to bargain with you, Lord, remind me that all you're calling me to do is step out in faith that you are the one that has control, Lord, and that I just need to simply trust you. Lord, maybe your picture be revealed to us. Lord, may your love be revealed to us. May we trust you to rescue us, Lord. For those that are struggling this morning, Lord, Lord, I ask that they may feel your love. May they feel your rescue. Lord, may, may they may you fill their lives with people alongside them that can support them when they don't want to face the boogeymen. And may they feel your power, Lord, in their lives. We ask all this in your precious name.